Father, thank you so much for Steve and, and for having him come up here to be with us this weekend. Um, I pray, Jesus, that in this moment you would come and minister through your Holy Spirit to us, um, that you would give Steve words and utterance, uh, and God, would what he says be profoundly impactful in each and every one of our lives. Um, would you communicate to our hearts, God, open our eyes and our ears and, and, and make us receptive to this word that Steve has brought. God, he is your mouthpiece right now, and I pray that the weight of that, the responsibility of that, and the glory of that would, would sit on his shoulders. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Jace, for that um, gracious introduction. <laughs> and uh, thanks again to the, to the elders, Derek and the, the other elders. I'm not sure if, uh, if I'm missing another elder in the room here. Uh, but thank you for inviting me to come and spend time with the, you guys up here. It's been a beautiful day together with the church. And I trust that this evening will be a good time in the Lord for us as well. I was at a, I was at a sort of um, church conference recently in Durban. And there was a guy there by the name of Tony Rainbow. Tony is an Australian. As you may have told from the accent of how I said his name. And Australians have a particularly unique way of expressing their Christianity. And Tony is, uh, uh, he, he's no exception. So his words to me over lunch were, um, I think most men's ministries are actually women's ministries dressed up in men's clothing. So what we do is we have a men's ministry called The Bloke. What we do is we do three Bs. Boxing, be, uh, beer, and... Uh, what's that one? Uh, no, no. <laughs> Please. Jason, that's three now. Um, I can't remember what the third B was. Anyhow, so they have a big boxing match. Uh, no, they're Australian, so it wouldn't have been a bri. <clears throat> Barbecue, probably. Anyway, so they have a, bo- they have a boxing ring... You know, one of the elders climbs in, and apparently one of the elders actually knocked one of the, 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 the parishioners out in the first three seconds of the first fight. But the guys love it, and they bring their friends, and so this is all a bit feminine for me, actually, Jason. <laughs> least we could do is be popping some pills here, you know. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. Um, I'm going to be sharing from the book of First Samuel, so if you could go there with me, please. And we're going to look at the life of two men, the life of Saul and the life of David. And I'm going to begin with just one verse, First Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. And then as we progress with the story, I'm going to then open up a few of the verses that preceded this verse. So what brought the history of Israel to this point, where we now reach 1 Samuel 16, chapter 1? So let's read that together. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing as I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? For your horn, uh, fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. So, we're at a very specific point in the history of Israel here. 
We're at the point where God finally rejects Saul from being king. And he now sends Samuel, the prophet, to go and anoint a new king. And what I want to do is I want to zoom out from that for just a second before we zoom back in. Because the big picture of what God is doing through space and time, his single plan of redemption that he's been working out. That's important to understand the context as we zoom back in and we look at this verse as to what it is Saul actually gave up and how he did give it up. So, uh, I'm so pleased you've been doing this course on uh, the sermon series on covenant theology, which has now come to an end a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Because to me, what was covered in that sermon series, every single Christian needs to understand that. We have to have an understanding of how it is we have come to the point we are now in history. And what God has been doing through space and time to prepare a bride for His Son. God's plan has never changed. He has been doing exactly what He wanted, or has wanted to do from the very beginning. Uh, obviously created the heavens and the earth. All three members of the Trinity are there. Um, at some point... After having made man in his own image, uh, Adam and Eve were able to resist sin. They were able to not sin and they were able to sin. They were in a, a kind of unique position as human beings in the whole scheme of redemptive history. We find ourselves, before we come to Christ... um, As human beings, our natural state when we're born is different to theirs was. We cannot help but sin. We are slaves of sin. And that's why we need to be rescued and freed from sin. But Adam and Eve were not like that. They could have not broken God's laws and not eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They had that choice. But they chose to rebel against God, not trust Him, trust the serpent. They ate. And in that moment, there was a federal fall. Now, what do I mean by a federal fall? Not only did Adam... Damage himself by sinning against God. But he was acting as the federal head or the representative of the entire human race that was in his loins, so to speak. And every single human being, and none of us had been born yet. They were the only two human beings at this point. But every single human being fell in that moment with them. One of, the, one of the, the, the doctrines of the Reformation that the Reformers recaptured was that man is entirely sold to sin. He is a slave of sin and guilty the moment he's born. He is guilty of sin before he has personally sinned. Because we are all guilty of Adam's sin. Adam's sin was imputed to the entire human race. And so it is that we also sin, because we are born with a broken, sinful nature. Now that sinful nature, in theological speak, is called original sin. So it was a federal fall. The whole human race plunged into darkness and misery through what Adam did. Shortly after that fall, God made a promise to the human race. This promise was directed to Eve... And he said to her, I am going to send a a, a human-born male descendant from you who will 
crush the serpent's head. The serpent will strike his heel in the process, but he will crush Satan's head. In other words, someone will be born at some point in history, a human-born Savior who will undo what Adam did. That's Genesis 3.15. That's called the Proto-Evangelion, the very first preaching of the gospel in the Bible. The seed of the woman, this man was called. The seed or the descendant of the woman. Um, Redemptive history then unfolded from that point. 4,000 years then marched on through time until the time Christ was born. And in that 4,000 years, God's primary tool, the primary mechanism he used to advance his plan of redemption... His plan to undo what Adam had done and save a people for his son, to give his son a bride. The major mechanism God uses to advance that at certain points in history is by making covenants with certain people. What's a covenant? A covenant is a relationship that God establishes with someone and then guarantees that by his word. He makes infallible promises, sometimes the, the, the conditions of that covenant are yet to be fulfilled, as in the case of the Mosaic Covenant. And sometimes the conditions were actually already fulfilled when God made the covenant, as in the case of Abraham. The point you need to, to, to get of what, what I'm trying to communicate is that God worked through space and time to prepare the world for the coming of the seed of the woman. Because God couldn't send... This great Savior into the world without preparing the world for His coming. There was 4,000 years worth of work that had to be done before the, the earth could receive this Savior. So God made a covenant with Noah to preserve the, the created order so that we could carry on living in this world. He then made a covenant with, with um, Abraham and He made Abraham a promise. He said, through your seed, Abraham... All the nations of the earth will be blessed through your seed. This was at a time when Abraham had no children. He got to 99 years old. He didn't, still didn't have any children. But God's promises are true and eventually he had Isaac. And it was through Isaac that that promise that through you, through your seed, all the nations will be blessed. Now in the New Testament it tells us what that blessing is. What was that blessing that God promised to all the nations through Abraham's seed? And Paul tells us that it is, uh, first of all, the forgiveness of sins. The blessing of Abraham that comes upon us as Gentiles is the forgiveness of sins. And secondly, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul says that in Galatians. So I want to just stop for a second. I want to ask you this. Have you received the blessing of Abraham in your own life? Do you know that your sins are forgiven you? That you have peace with God? And that when you die, you know you are going to go to heaven. Do you know that? Because that is offered to you through the promise that God made to Abraham 4,000 years ago. 3,000, 3,500 years ago. And secondly, have you received the gift of the Holy Spirit? Because that's the second promise that is made to the Gentiles through Abraham. Abraham believed that promise. He put two and two together. The Bible says the gospel was preached to Abraham and he believed it. 
He knew that when God said to him, through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He understood this is this human born savior that God promised to Eve back in the Garden of Eden that will one day come and undo what Adam did. He, 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 God is promising me that this savior will be born through me. I will be his great, 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 great grandfather. He believed and he was justified by faith. Moses comes along, he delivers the people from Egypt, a new covenant is then made, which we call the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the law is given, Um, Joshua then takes the people into the promised land, once they're in the promised land, God gives them judges to judge them for I think about a 400 year period, and at the end of that 400 year period, things are drastically going wrong, every man is doing what is right in his own eyes, and uh, the people begin to crave a king. Now, i just put the pause button on the story there for a second. Why Israel? I think it was Martin Luther who said that Israel, the nation of Israel, was a womb for the Messiah. What a beautiful analogy. It was a womb for the Messiah. It was a nation with its own physical place to live, where it could live with independence and secure, national security, etc. That's why they needed a land. They could live and then God himself could come down out of heaven, so to speak, and begin to interact with them by making a covenant with Israel, with a nation. Because for the Messiah to come, there had to be some revelation to men, to sinful men of what God is like. And God did that with the nation of Israel. He came down and he revealed a law for the first time now through a covenant God's people now had an explicit explanation of the nature of God, of His righteousness, of His being, of what sin is. That's what the law did, and it revealed sin. And not only that, but how gracious God is. That this God is a God who cleanses sin, that He is willing to forgive. And that's what the whole sacrificial system was a picture of. Substitutionary atonement. That instead of the, the nation of Israel or an individual Israelite coming under the judgment of God for sin, an animal could be substituted for that person or for the nation, and that animal would be killed, its blood would be shed, and God's wrath, God's justice would be satisfied in a, in a temporal way in the Mosaic Covenant by the sacrifice of that animal. It was teaching the people how to think. God had to do that for 4,000 years before He could send the Messiah. So that there was at least a context for understanding Him when He came. Of what His person, who He was, and what His work was. So, Moses, the judges, and then the people, impatiently so, said, we want a king. We want to be like the other nations. We want a king to go out and fight our battles for us. And Samuel the prophet... He's the last judge and he's, the, he's, he's kind of the, the first of Israel's prophets. He stands at this, at this crucial time in Israel's history. Samuel is grieved when he hears the people say, give us a king. We want to be like the other nations. Because Samuel says, God wants to be your king. He, he wants you to trust him. He wants you to be able to come to him and trust him even when there is conflict and battles. But they refused. They did not want to trust God. This is going to be one of my points to you tonight, is that God expects every Christian to be able to come to Him directly and do business with Him. 
And this is what the Israelites refused to do. They wanted someone to go ahead of them. And so, as it turns out, God did want to give them a king. But they were a generation early. And they wanted the king for the wrong reasons. And so God says, fine. Samuel, give him a king. And he gave them this man called Saul. Saul was great on the outside. A head and shoulders taller than everybody else. They thought, wow, what a good looking guy. What a tall, what a tall, you know, he's strong. He's going to deliver us. They rejoiced in their king. But he was the wrong man. And uh, things started reasonably well for Saul. Uh, It all fell apart, and we're going to then zoom back into the story when we get back onto Saul. But after Saul was removed from being king, he was eventually killed by the Philistines. This man named David took over the throne, and David was entirely different to Saul. This was a regenerate man. What does that mean? It means he was born again. David was born again. His heart had been changed to love God, to want to serve God, to live for the glory of God. He was a man after God's own heart in Old Testament language. And at some point in David's life, God appeared to him. It was actually just after David had had wanted to build God a temple. David took a look at his own house. He was living in a house of cedar, beautiful home. and And he saw the ark of God, which was kind of represented the presence of God amongst his people. And it was living in a tent. And he thought to himself, this is not right. This is not right. I live in a house of cedar. The ark of God is in a tent. I will not have this. I I want to build God a temple. And it's going to be the most glorious temple that's ever been built. And at that moment, the, the prophet Nathan comes to David. And he says to him, you did well. The Lord says you did well to want to build me a house. But I now make a covenant with you. I am going to build you a house. And at this point, it's a crucial point in redemptive history. God makes another covenant. This is a huge step forward in God's plan that's unfolding through space and time. And he makes David several promises in this covenant. One of them is that this, this kingdom, which David is now the king of, is going to be an everlasting kingdom. Now you think of that. That is a staggering, phenomenal promise. I mean, you compare that to the dynasties of other kingdoms in every other nation in the world. You know, a couple of hundred years is a very long dynasty. I think the the longest reigning dynasty in the world is just over a thousand years. I think it's the current Japanese dynasty, just over a thousand years. Well, this is billions and billions and billions and billions of years without end. God says, your kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and your sons will will sit on the throne of this kingdom for all eternity. I mean, the human mind can't contain that. What a promise. Not only that, but God promises a tremendous level of intimacy between himself and David and David's sons. He says, I will be their father and and they, your son, will be my son. That's fulfilled immediately in the, in the life of, of Solomon. He says, if he sins, I'll discipline him, but I won't forsake him. I won't remove my mercy from him as I did from Saul. I will see this, your son, I will see him through to the end. So Solomon backslides at the end of his life. He comes back to the Lord. But that promise that your son will be my son was fulfilled most fully in the descendant of David who was born 700 years later, 
Jesus Christ. He was born in the family, in the line of David, and he was the very Son of God, the second member of the Trinity. So David uh, is promised this incredible fatherly love and faithfulness for him and for his sons. No one else until that point had called God Father. The nation of Israel, sure, that's my son, said God, but not an individual. This is a huge step forward in the, in the love of God for human beings. Just understand this. The only reason you can call yourself the son of God here tonight and have that kind of intimacy with a father is because God made this promise to David. It's the only reason it's yours. You inherit this promise because the son of David inherited this promise. And you are united to him by faith. And you are the son of God because you're in Jesus Christ. That's the only reason you're the son of God. This, these promises have profound implications for our lives. Not only that, but God promised David through this covenant that all of the outward blessings of the kingdom would be his. He said he would give him victory over all his enemies. And David's kingdom, over the next 40 years, it became the most powerful nation on earth. There was not a nation that could stand against David. We don't have anything to compare to that in our generation. There's a multitude of, of strong nations in our world. Well, in, in David's time, he was the most powerful man in the world. The Bible says that, that his enemies came groveling at his feet. And that was a gift from God. God was pleased to give that to him. He had wealth. He had power. He had influence. He had respect. He had purpose and destiny. Promises for eternity. Everything a man could want. Everything that our Hearts as men desire influence and power and, and, and destiny and purpose. That's what we as men want. He had it. It was given to him by the promise of God. Not only that, he also had the great blessing of functioning as a type in history of the coming Messiah. Part of what God did in this great unfolding story is he put types and shadows of the Messiah into history. He just placed them there because he's sovereign over history. Does whatever he wants. And David was a type of Jesus. And then lastly, he actually had the blessing of being the physical ancestor of the Messiah. Just as Abraham had been chosen among all the men of his generation to be the man through whom this human-born Savior would come. Now it was David who was chosen and nobody else in his generation. What a privilege. So David had amazing blessings and promises made to him in this Davidic covenant. Now that's going to be important as I compare David and Saul. Um, subsequent to that, Solomon takes over the, the, the king. His sons after him, they begin to um, forsake the Lord, break the covenant, and in the end, 722, the northern kingdom goes into exile, 586, the southern kingdom gets taken into exile by the Babylonians. And since that day, since the Babylonian exile in 586, the throne of David has never been re-established. Or has it? From that moment on, Israel were never a self-standing kingdom ever again. And so what happened during the time of uh, the exile and then after the exile when there was a return, they rebuilt the temple which had been destroyed, but they were under the dominion of the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans. And throughout all that time, they were just a vassal 
province under the direction of, of another kingdom. And the cry of every Israelite's heart was, where are the promises of David? Where is this everlasting throne? We don't even have a throne anymore. There was some prophetic activity. Haggai, Zechariah prophesying while they were rebuilding the temple. And then the final Israelite prophet was a guy called Malachi. He's calling them back again to righteousness because they were backsliding again. And then after Malachi, there's 300 years of complete silence. And they, and they don't know, where is God? Where are the promises? Is, is, is Israel finished? Or are the promises finished? And that silence endured until one day an angel was sent to a man called Zechariah, her priest, who was busy ministering in the temple. And God appeared to him, an angel appeared to him, and God spoke to him through this angel saying, you're going to have a son. I want you to call his name John. And he's going to be great. He's going to go before the Messiah. He's going to prepare the way before the Messiah. And of course that was John the Baptist's father who was being spoken to there. Six months later, that same angel Gabriel was sent to a young, humble virgin, probably 12 or 13 years old. And he said to her, her name was Mary, he said to her, you're going to have a son. She said, how on earth can I have a son? I'm a virgin, I'm not even married. He said, don't worry. The, the child that will be born of you will be conceived by the Holy Spirit himself. Therefore, he will be called the Son of God. And he will sit on the throne of his father, David. You see, so the, the, the words of the angel are calling the, the promises of the covenant and saying the covenant promises are still available today. And this son that you're going to have he will finally be the one, after hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of no kingdom in, in Israel, this will be the one who once again ascends to the throne of David. And his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. The promises are true. Okay, so that's kind of the big context. The church is born. The gospel goes out to the nations and one day Jesus is returning. He is ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father on that throne today. Okay, now what I want to do is I want to, I want to zoom back in now to that little point along this timeline of God's plan. I want to go back to this, this transition between Saul and David. And I want to compare these two men because I think there's three particular aspects of their lives that we need to learn from if we're going to live lives of significance as Christian men. So Saul was chosen as king. He ruled for 30 years. He started off pretty well. He had the Spirit of God on him. I don't believe in him, but on him to do certain things. But pretty soon as you read the story, um, some cracks start to show in his character. Um, a few of those to mention them. He, he, he offered a burnt offering in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 13, just a couple of chapters back. And this is after Samuel had said to him when he anointed him king, in 1 Samuel 10 verse 8, Samuel had said to him, <clears throat> You shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Samuel said to him, Go down to Gilgal, I'm going to come after seven days. 
And he goes on to say that. Seven days you will wait until I come to you and show you what you should do. After seven days, I am going to come out and meet you at Gilgal. Then I, as the authorized priest in the nation, will make burnt offerings and sacrifices. It was unlawful by Mosaic law for Saul to make sacrifices. It was only for the priests. And Samuel was anointed as priest at this time. He says, wait seven days. So you page a couple of pages forward in, in uh, chapter 13. You'll, you'll see probably the heading of your Bible in that paragraph says Saul's unlawful sacrifice. And what Saul did was the Philistines were now encamped against him. All sorts of pressure being put on him. And it's now he's, he's, he's checking his cock. It's the seventh day. It's getting towards evening. Where's Samuel? Where's Samuel? And he starts to freak out and he jumps the gun. And he goes and sacrifices the burnt offering himself. He he, he didn't bother praying. He didn't bother um, waiting or seeking God or seeking counsel. He just wanted to make the sacrifices. Why? Because Saul had a religious worldview. He, He was a man that had no relationship with God. He did not want to interact with God, serve God, glorify God, obey God. He... He treated God like one of the pagan gods. We just burn some incense. We we pour a little drink offering. We sacrifice an animal and that appeases the gods. He treated Yahweh, the God of the covenant. I mean, what is covenant? Covenant is relationship. This is the one thing Saul did not understand. And so he just wanted to perform the sacrifice to appease the God. So that he could now win this battle against the Philistines. No patience, no prayer. The next crack in his character, we see in the next chapter, he's, he's cowardly. He was a cowardly leader. We see him sitting under a, a, a pomegranate tree with 600 men around him, doing absolutely nothing. Meanwhile, his son, Jonathan, only has one man with him, his armor bearer. And what does Jonathan say? He says, let's go up to that, that uh, Philistine encampment. Because it is nothing for our God to save by many or by few. Are you with me? Armor bearer says... I'm with you, let's go. And they go, they kill as they're going up the hill. He kills 30 guys, strikes them down, the armor bearers finishing them off. They're just going up this hill. After they've killed 30 of them, there is, a, there is a, a panic that hits the Philistine camp. And the whole army of the Philistines flees because of the bravery of this man. And then it's compared in the same little section of scripture there to Saul sitting under a blooming pomegranate a tree doing absolutely nothing with 600 men around him. He was a coward. Then we see his treating the ark like a good luck omen. It's the same religious thing I was talking to you about. While the Philistines are fleeing, he says, bring the ark, bring the ark. Like that's going to somehow, like it's a magic, you know, talisman. Like a, like a yummy yummy. that's going to bring me good luck. That's how he treated God. Bring the ark. And then he kind of gets distracted and then, oh, let's go into the battle anyway. Guy had no relationship with the Lord. He makes a rash oath. He forbids all his soldiers from eating anything until the end of the day. Stupid oath. These guys are fighting for him and now, just out of some religious zeal, he told them, I don't eat anything. And they could have had a far greater victory if he had allowed his troops to eat. His son, Jonathan, didn't hear the oath. He puts his staff at the end of... End of his staff in some honey, puts the honey in his mouth and he feels strengthened for the battle. But because of that and the oath, 
He was almost executed by his father. But for the people. He was going to execute Jonathan. And the people stepped and said, no you won't. This guy saved us today. So we start to see this man's life crack and crack and crack. And then the last straw that broke the camel's back, as they call it, that was this issue of the Amalekites. So Samuel came to, to Saul. This is First Samuel chapter 15. And he says to him, I chose you to be king, says God. I'm going to give you an instruction now which I want you to obey. And just note the grace of God here. God gave Samuel so many opportunities to repent and obey. Here's another opportunity, Samuel, repent and obey. Obey me, obey me, obey me. And every time he failed. So God comes again. He says, okay, I've got a job for you. The Amalekites. This is this group of people that had afflicted the children of Israel when they came out of slavery in Egypt. And God says, I saw what they did the day I brought my, my people out of, out of Egypt. And I want you now to execute vengeance on the sinners. He called, God calls them the sinners. And I want you to execute the ban upon them. So what is the ban? That was an instruction where an army would go into a, a place and completely annihilate it. Kill every man, woman, child, dog, donkey, horse, goldfish. Everything is to get killed. He tells him to do that. Saul goes off to the battle. He gets given victory because God is gracious. But in his victory, he, he, he casts longing eyes on, on some of the best of the cattle and the sheep. And he preserves the king of the Amalekites alive. This guy's name was Agag. And he brings Agag back from the battle together with all these beautiful sheep and oxen that they haven't killed. And they're now in the camp. And now I want to read to you, we're going to read a, a, a section of scripture from chapter 15, 1 Samuel 15. We're going to read from verse 10 up to verse 31. <clears throat> now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself, and he's gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. So here we see Saul, he's got the head, not the head, the, the living guy, Agag, with him, the, the king of the Amalekites, and he's taking the guy on a roadshow now, Bragging, look, I've beaten the Amalekites. Look, here's the king, we've got him in chains. Glorifying himself. He's just showing the guy off. And he builds a monument to himself. Then Samuel went to Saul. And Saul said to him, Ah, oh, blessed are you of the Lord. I've performed the commandment of the Lord. So the first thing Saul does, he just flat out lies. He just lies. I, I, look, I've done what, you did, what, what I was told to do. No, you haven't. So I love Samuel's response. He says, what then is this bleating of sheep in my ears and this lowing of oxen which I hear? And Saul said, they, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people. They spared the best of the sheep and the oxen. <clears throat> so he just blames it on someone else now. 
No humility, no repentance in this man. He's not blaming it on someone else. He then goes on to say, and they did that to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And, and, and the rest that we have utterly destroyed. The reason we kept them, Samuel, is, is so that we could sacrifice them to God. This religious spirit in this man again. Then Samuel said to Saul, be quiet. Basically said, just shut up, man. I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And, and Saul says, speak on. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? The only reason you are king, Saul, is because God made you king. You think you're so big stuff, you've gone and made, you built a monument for yourself. You're dreaming, my friend. This is the work of God in your life. And did not the Lord anoint you king? Now the Lord sent you on a mission. And he said to you, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, but, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. And, and, I, and I have gone on, on a mission on which the Lord had sent me. So now he starts to rely on his good works. Well, maybe I didn't do it perfectly, but I, at least I left home. Don't you know what I, I, I've been through to, to go on this? But he starts leaning on his own good works. It actually makes a fascinating study of what the unregenerate heart when it does when it's faced with sin. It denies it, it lies, then it blames everyone else, then it tries to perform some religious duty, then it, it, uh, it, it, it tries to lean on its own good work. Well, look at all the good things I've done. And then the next thing it's going to do, it's going to try to hide behind a, a priest. People love doing that. This is what he's going to try to do now. He says, I have gone. And I've brought back Agag, the king of, the Amal- of Amalek, and I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people, now he's trying to blame everyone else again. The people took the plunder, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed. But they brought them to sacrifice to the Lord. Come on, Samuel, just loosen up. So Samuel says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, it is better to obey than to sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. My fear is that many people do this in their lives. They're not willing to admit their own sinfulness and they're not willing to turn away from sinful practices in their own lives, but they try to mask it over with all sorts of religious activity. They want to come to church. They want to have religious conversations. They want to even pray for people. They, but actually, God isn't interested in any of that. If you are not willing to obey Him. For rebellion is the sin of witchcraft. And stubbornness. How many men are stubborn? Stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel. I I, I have sinned. For I've transgressed the command of the Lord. I mean he's got nowhere to go now. He has to admit I did this wrong. But now, what's his next excuse? Because I feared the people. And, 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 and I obeyed their voice. So now he's playing the, he's playing the martyr now. He wants, he wants Samuel to feel sorry for him. I was scared of the people, Samuel. Can't you understand? It's pathetic. This man is pathetic. 
Please don't be pathetic like this man. When you've sinned, admit it. Repent of it. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. So now, he's got no relationship with God. He wants Samuel to go with him so that he can worship the Lord. Samuel, you go ahead and you do the sacrifice. Instead of coming to God himself. Oh God, I've sinned against you. I was disobedient. Please forgive me. He won't do that. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around. So now now Saul is pressed and pressed and pressed and pressed into repentance. Now what does he do? What's the next way he does not repent? As Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. He loses his temper. This is the next thing a sinner will do. He'll get angry. Samuel looks at this torn robe. Looks at Saul. Says, says to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today. And he has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. This is the reason Saul hated David so much. Because he knew that this was talking about David. After he had found out that David had been anointed. And also the strength of Israel, Yahweh. He will not lie nor relent. For he is not a man that he should relent. Therefore, he said, uh, sorry, then Saul said, I have sinned. Yet, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people. What's the next thing Saul does? He now wants to save face. Okay, I've sinned, I get it, I'm wrong, fine. But, but don't tell the people, just you come with me. Because if you're not with me, they're going to know that I've done something wrong. You come, just, just, he's so petrified of what people think about him. How many people refuse to come to Christ because they're so terrified of what their girlfriend or their friends or whatever are going to think about them? He says, return with me please and, and honor me before the people... Before the elders and return with me that I may worship the Lord. There it is again. I can't worship him without you, Samuel. So Samuel turned back after Saul because Samuel was gracious. But the oath had been taken. Saul had been rejected. And Saul worshipped the Lord. Not truly hiding behind Samuel. Then Samuel said, bring Agag. And and Samuel hacks him to pieces in front of the people. So that's, that's the story of Saul. Now that brings us to where we began, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, seeing as I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil. It was the sign of God's anointing or setting someone apart to be king. Fill your horn with oil. And go, I'm sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And that's obviously referring to David. David was the son of Jesse. So, David is an entirely different man. This is a man that had faith. He loved God. He served God in his generation. Uh, He had great intimacy with God. I want to talk more about David in a second. But what I want to do is I I want to compare now David and Saul in three main areas. 
And I believe that these three areas are some of the biggest areas of temptation for us as men. And I want to, I want to show you how Saul was in these three areas and how David was. And obviously my exhortation to you tonight is to be like David. So the, these three areas are faith, obedience, and humility slash repentance. Faith, obedience, and humility. So let's look at, at, at Saul versus David on these three things. Um, let's look at faith. So Saul was a faithless man. Had no faith, had no relationship with God. And one of the ways, that the biggest ways we see that Saul had no faith was because he was impatient. He could not wait for God to work out his plans in his own way. When you don't have any faith in God, you cannot wait on God. So what does Saul do? He goes and sacrifices. I'll, I'll read to you that. That's First Samuel 13. When he was expecting Saul within seven days, but then he just rushed it. He went and, and did something that he knew was unlawful. He knew he, as king he was not allowed to perform a sacrifice. And yet he did it. Um, this is chapter 13 from verse 8. So then Saul waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering to me and peace offerings here. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened, as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering, that Samuel came. Let me tell you, my friend, God is never late. One of your great challenges as a man, as a red-blooded Zimbabwean man, is going to be to rush the purposes of God in your life. To take things into your own hands. Because it's taking too long and I'm getting nervous and I'm he just couldn't wait any longer because he had no faith. And Samuel says, what have you done? So Saul's got all his excuses. Well, when I saw that people were scattered from me and that you didn't come within the, the days appointed, it's your fault, you late. And that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash. Then I said, the Philistines will now come down. They'll beat me. Therefore, I felt compelled and I offered this burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which has commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom. I'm going to pull up on, pick up on that phrase later. The Lord would have established your kingdom. He would have established it over Israel forever. You know what that means? That means all those promises that I said God made to David in the Davidic covenant. I mean, promises so astounding that they will continue into eternity. Those promises could have been Saul's. But he lost it all. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. Faithlessness manifesting in impatience. One of the great Bible commentators, a guy called Matthew Henry, said this, commenting on these verses. We are taught hereby how necessary it is that we wait on our God continually. Saul lost his kingdom for want of two or three hours patience. Saul lost his kingdom for want of two or three hours patience. 
Don't take your destiny, what you think God's called you to, you are not going to have to force that into being. God will do it when God is ready. Your job is to seek Him, seek Him, seek Him, seek Him, seek Him, seek Him, stay humble. The other two points we get into, obey, repent when you don't, obey, repent when you don't, stay close, keep pouring your heart out to God and trust Him with your life. How many young girls have gone and married an unbeliever because they could not wait for the spouse that God says He will bring? No, but I'll, I'll, I'll convert him. And next thing, there's 30, 40 years of misery. And when you have children, just wait on God, guys. Secondly, this impatience thing. Let me just dwell on that for a second more. You see this throughout the Bible. You see this in the life of Esau. Here's another man that gave up his birthright. It could have been Esau's name. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's how we know our God. It could have been, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. could have been that. But he got home one day, and he was hungry, and he couldn't wait for a meal to be cooked for him, and he just gave away his whole birthright. And little did he know what that would mean thousands of years after he lived. Millions of years after he lived. The name of Jacob is going to be immortalized in heaven. It could, have been, it could have been Esau. But he gave it away because he was too immature to wait. <clears throat> then secondly, disobedience. So, first one, faith, patience. Second one, obedience. In Saul's case, disobedience. We've seen he's disobeyed God a number of times. First of all, he makes the sacrifice that he was not allowed to make. Second of all, he goes and he beats the Amalekites. He was supposed to kill them. Well, he doesn't. He takes Agag and a whole lot of the sheep. He was just outright disobedient. Disobedience. My friend, listen to me. Disobedience will rob you of your destiny. It's worth obeying our God. He knows what He's doing with your life. Just trust Him enough to obey Him. Thirdly, unrepentance. An unwillingness to be rebuked. An unwillingness to be humbled in front of people. This man had so much pride. And his pride robbed him of an eternity of honor. Too proud. Too proud to repent. Too proud to admit that he's done anything wrong. Now I want to compare that with David. So while Saul was faithless, disobedient, and had no sense of humility, no sense of of his own fallenness and and a, and a, a desire to be made right with God. He had no heart to be made right with God. Now you compare that to David. On the faith thing, David was quite clearly a man of great faith. And his faith gave him great patience. David had faith, not just in God's plan for his own life, but in God's plan for his, his descendants and for the very future of his life. David wrote some of the most remarkable messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. 
David saw the Messiah coming. David saw, they pierced my hands and my feet, Psalm 22. David wrote that. David wrote Psalm 110, quoted so famously by Jesus. said, so, uh, tell me, whose son do you think the Messiah is? And the scribes and Pharisees think they're so clever, he's David's son. So then he quotes Psalm 110, he says, okay, that's true. Then how come David calls him Lord? The Lord said to my Lord, who was his physical descendant, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And they couldn't answer Jesus. You see, David knew this seed of the woman, this one who will come and undo what Adam did, this one who will come and live a perfect life on our behalf and who will die as a sacrifice for our sins, this one who will be born through my my genealogy will be a divine being and I call him Lord even though he's my descendant. David had faith in the gospel. And we see this working itself out in a life of patience. It's always struck me as you read through the account of David's life, first and second Samuel. You see how patient David was in grabbing the throne for himself. Twice, David had had an opportunity to kill Saul. David had been anointed as king years before when Samuel took his horn of oil. Years later, David is in a cave. He's on the run. He's like a dog. He's got nothing. He calls himself a flea. And then his enemy comes in. Falls asleep. And and, and, And David's men are saying, kill him. Kill him. God has delivered him into your hands. This is not a coincidence, David. God has done this. Kill him. Don't you remember, David? Samuel anointed you with oil. You have been sent to be the next king of Israel. This is how it's going to happen. If you don't do this now, you will lose the kingdom. Kill him, David. This was the voice in his head. What did David say? Against all of their voices, he says, Far be it from me to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. He even felt guilty for cutting off a corner of Saul's robe. Another time he had a chance. He went down into the, the encampment. A deep sleep was on all of them. Abishai, uh, just a mean guy, Joab's brother, he was with him, one of the generals of the army. He says, let me strike him to the ground. They're all under a deep sleep by God. And, and uh, we can be done with this whole thing. And David says, far be it from me to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. His day will come, says David. He will die. He'll die of a disease. He'll die in the battle. God will see to it. When God is ready for me to take the throne, He will do it. I will not take it into my own hands. Listen to me. God is speaking to you tonight. Be like David. Let God do His work in your life. And don't rush it. Patience coming from faith. Secondly, obedience. David was an exceedingly obedient man. So obedient was David that if you look through the record of the kings that came after him, whether that king was good or whether that king was evil, many times they are compared back to David. So and so became king and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Or so-and-so becomes king and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord like his father David had done. David becomes like the poster child of obedience in the kingdom. 
David was an obedient man. Now you say, well, what about the uncomfortable incident of Bathsheba and Uriah? Well, we're not saying he's perfect. An obedient man is not a perfect man. An obedient man is a man whose life is marked by regular and constant obedience to his Lord. And when he stumbles, he repents quickly. That's an obedient man. He repents quickly. And this is the third point. The, 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 the unrepentance of Saul, making excuses, blaming everyone else, full of pride, versus the humility of David when he was rebuked for that sin with Uriah and, and Bathsheba. Nathan comes to him and, and rebukes him for the sin, and immediately he humbles himself. He says, I've sinned. You go and read Psalm 51, which is his great prayer of repentance. He doesn't care what people think about him. He's not concerned with his reputation. He's not concerned with blaming someone else or, or, or trying to hide behind or say, well, look at all the good things I've done. He confesses, I have done this wickedness in your sight, my God. And that's why Nathan says to him, God has put your sin behind you. It's okay, it's forgiven you. David was a repentant, humble man because he looked forward to the day that that human-born Savior would come and deal with his sin. He looked forward to Christ. And so we see that where Saul is faithless, disobedient, and will not repent, David does the opposite. And because of that, David inherits all of these promises that are made in the Davidic covenant. And Saul gave it up. Alright, I want to apply this to us today. Like David knew that there was a greater significance to his life. And that his life would only be significant if he, if he, if he lived it in faith and obedience and humility. Because he saw that big picture. See, that's the difference between David and Saul. David can zoom out. And he can see this great story of redemption. And he understood, I am only a part of that. This is not about me. This is about the glory of God. This is about God gathering a people for himself. And I have a part to play in this. And so that stimulated a faithfulness, an obedience, a humility in David. Saul couldn't care less about the grand story of God. He only cared about himself. And the same is, is true of us. It is only in Jesus, as David understood, it's only in that seed that my life is significant for anything. It's only in Jesus that your life will count for anything significant. Anything. It's only in Jesus. The amazing thing about this is that when Saul lived for himself, for his own pleasure, for his own pride, setting up monuments to himself. He lost everything. And he died in shame and irrelevance. And gents, if, if I can speak straight to you tonight, I, you will live and die a life of shame and of irrelevance. You want your life to be irrelevant. 
You will live that kind of life if you do not put your faith and patience in our God. If you do not obey Him and if you do not have a tender conscience that is quick to repent and make peace with Him. You, you can do that if you want. And you might get pride and, and accolades in this world. But I'm telling you, your life will be insignificant in a thousand years time. You want to live a life of true significance. This is the, the path to significance. You see, it's an upside down kingdom. <coughs> the path to greatness in this kingdom is the path of faith and of patience and of obedience and of humility. That's the path to significance. And you can have it if you want it. The promise is there for you. Jesus said if you try to save your life and live only for yourself like Saul did, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for the sake of Jesus and for His gospel, you find it. So, as I close... These three things, guys, as men particularly, these are three incredibly dangerous areas where, where we can throw away an eternal destiny upon our lives. If you're not willing to wait on God and trust Him. If you're not willing to obey if there's that secret sin that you continue to commit, your financial affairs, your sexual life, the way you treat um, authority, your language. If you know there's something that God has been on your case about and you refuse to obey, you are only hurting yourself. You're being a fool like Saul. And repentance. Now this is one of the hardest for us men because we don't like to be embarrassed. We're full of pride. Somehow my prayer is that God would give you and God would give me hearts that are quick to repent. Consciences that are sensitive to the voice of the Spirit. And when another human being, one of our brothers, rebukes us, that we will not be like Saul and the back will go up and the, and the pride and the heckles get lifted. No, that we will be humble. And we will say, let me listen to what you have said, my brother. Let me, let me pray about that. And if I'm, if I'm wrong in that matter, please forgive me and I will repent. Please, humble yourself. And then there's great promise. Just like David had many promises, here are some of the promises that, that, that you are offered in the gospel if you will live this kind of life. You'll be granted entrance into this Davidic kingdom. Because what we find out that that Davidic kingdom isn't actually on this earth. It's not just governing a little piece of property in the Middle East. It is a throne that is set in heaven and it rules over the entire universe. And you will go there and be a subject in that kingdom one day. And you will be ruled by a perfect shepherd king. And we will serve our shepherd king as he leads us. You can have that. And we will reign with him. What does that mean? I can't, I can't wait to find out. We will reign with him in this kingdom over the entire universe. You want that? You can have it. God offers that to you. He wants to give it to you. Under the rule of our shepherd king, we will have victory over all our enemies. 
You'll have victory over the sin that you so struggle with in this world. You will one day have complete and utter victory over it. You will have victory over those who oppress the church and who resist the gospel. One day they will crawl on their bellies, licking dust with their tongues on the day of judgment, crying out for mercy. As you stand in dignity and watch God throw them into hell, you will be there. We will have victory over our enemies. And we will see victory over our great enemy. All the spiritual hosts of wickedness. All demons. And Satan himself. The Bible says we will trample Satan under our feet. We will have victory over our enemies. Because our king is victorious. We'll serve him in this kingdom. Which will be a physical kingdom. We'll serve him in physical resurrected bodies. With perfect joy and dignity. For all eternity. You will not be a marginalized person as you live in this great community of heaven where brothers and sisters love each other perfectly. There's no such thing as black and white or poor or rich or any kind of social grading. When we get there, we will love each other perfectly and you will be loved perfectly. What a place. Amen. And this will be the case for all eternity. You can't get your head around eternity. Try to think of living for 10,000 years. You can't. And that's not even the start of it. This is what's been promised. It's an eternal throne. And God will be our Father. And we will be His sons. This is the promise God made to David. Your son will be my son and I will be his father. That's Jesus in the end. But we through faith in him are united to him. And so we become the sons of God. And when he looks out of heaven and when he sees us in heaven one day, he will say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. God will be your father. You'll be his son and you'll live with your father for all eternity. And there'll be no temple there. There'll be no place where the presence of God has to be kept. In heaven, His presence will be in our very midst. We will see Him with our own eyes. The promises of the gospel, incredible. So this is what God offers to those who will have faith, put their faith in the seed, the Jesus who died for our sin, put their faith in Him. And be willing to wait on God. Who will live lives of obedience. As the Holy Spirit empowers you. And will be quick to repent. And have a a soft heart when you sin. These are the promises made to people who will live like that. Will you live like that?